the music was killer. These people were cool and they had cool dreams. Yeah. They like lived in a cool apartment building in a cool city. They wore cool clothes. Like they did cool stuff. They drank a lot of coffee. I mean, what's not to love? Hello at long last. Welcome to season four of the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a pop culture lover who's thrilled not only to be back, but to welcome back Kate, my childhood best friend and season one co-host to rock your world as we break down the sex, single life, and Seattle sound of 1992's Gen X classic, Singles. Welcome back to the podcast, Kate. It has been a minute. Tell us what you've been up to, girl. Oh my goodness. So I bought a house since the last like full season that I did. Uh, and then I've spent my entire summer trying to redo my backyard largely by myself. It has been quite the undertaking. Like I ordered three pallets of bricks and uh, six cubic yards of gravel. Like a I shit think. ton of gravel. <laughs> yeah, like a literal shit ton. And and of course, they will only deliver it to your curb. Uh, so that's been a lot of hauling. But I have lovely neighbors, and my neighbors actually helped me do some hauling. Oh. So you're creating your own sort of like singles family, if you will, right? Like your neighbors are becoming sort of like family. I don't know that we're quite to that point, but like neighbors. Really, really friendly neighbors. Very friendly, super nice, um, which I appreciate because I'm actually quite introverted. I have not really ever known my neighbors. Uh, My other best friend always knows her neighbors. Like wherever she lives, she's like best buddies with her neighbors. And I'm like, how does that happen? I keep to myself. (laughs) I don't really know our neighbors. We've been in this house 50. years. And my husband knows everybody. He's become the friendly one, which who would have thought you've known my husband a long time. It's interesting. Right. Speaking of introverts. um. (laughs) Yeah. He was always the introvert, but now I am becoming the introvert and I don't really know my neighbors, but I love this idea of living in like a complex and having neighbors like family. When I was like 19, I lived in Madison, Wisconsin. I had sublet an apartment for the summer. And then my sublet ended and I didn't have a plan of what I was going to do. Well, my very good friend had a studio apartment in this apartment building. It was an old house that had been converted into like four apartments. And she and her boyfriend decided to move upstairs to live together. And so I rented their apartment. They lived upstairs. And then Dave and Heather, who were the people down the hall... So like we would sometimes leave our doors open and like my cats would go one place and like somebody's dog would come visit me. And like, yeah, it was very cool. I love that idea so much. Okay. This movie singles, I know, you know it. I know you love it. Yeah. Tell me about your history with this film. So, you know, I don't remember when I first watched singles. In fact, as I was watching it last night, I was like, what year did this come out? How old was I? So I would have been 16. Mm Mm-hmm. And it is kind of funny because as I was re-watching it, I was like, I mean, I'm enjoying myself, but it's not feeling the way it used to feel to me. But I think it's because 
that was like very much the kind of life I aspired to as a young person. Right. So it was like watching the life that I wanted. And so I think it always sort of felt to me like, I don't like it was like the next step up from like reality bites, right? Like you sort of start out with reality bites and then you move on to singles. Yes. <laughs> that makes like perfect sense. Trendy progressive towns. That's a true Gen Xer. Right. <laughs> so I think that like in some sense, when I watched that, like Kira Sedgwick, which like who doesn't love her? She was so adorable, felt a little bit like a role model to me. Okay. You know? So yeah, so I was like super into it and like also, like, Eddie Vedder in this movie is a beautiful, beautiful man. <laughs> I mean, he's a beautiful man always. <laughs> Chris Cornell. I was like, yes, yeah. please. Yeah. Lane Staley. Just a cast of Seattle beloved musicians. Right. The music was killer. These right. people were cool. And they had cool jobs. And they had cool dreams. Yeah. They, like, lived in a cool apartment building in a cool city. They wore cool clothes, like they did cool stuff. They drank a lot of coffee. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> right. I think there were some people who watched Melrose Place and like aspired to that kind of life. I did not. That was not my vibe. But like this was this was like right. my Melrose Place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, as you know, Singles was written and directed by our beloved Cameron Crowe, who wrote Fast Times and uh, Say Anything, which he also directed. I covered both of those things in season two. Actually, I did Say Anything with your brother, Pat. Oh, right. Yeah. Say Anything. Now that movie, that movie holds up. I just have to say, I love that movie. So 100%. Yeah. So he's written and directed so many of our favorite films. Oh, Almost Famous. Yeah. Yes. Almost Famous. Thank you. Jerry Maguire, Elizabeth Town, which I truly adore. This film was released on September 18th, 1992. But did you know the idea for this film was originally scheduled for production way back in 1984, and it was set to take place in Phoenix, Arizona. Would have been a very different film. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine the bangs. Imagine the bangs. Oh, man. And in Phoenix, like, I don't know what the scene was in Phoenix. Phoenix. I'm sure there was one. But the project ended up getting delayed because Cameron had some sort of, like, box office flop, which just kind of put the whole thing on ice, you know, Mm. as it happens. And then Once he got back up and running with the idea, he wanted to shift the location to Seattle. Once he saw the way the music scene came together following the death of Andy Wood, the lead singer of Mother Love Bone in 1990. So now it's going to be a film about Seattle. Right. Crow told Rolling Stone, so that was the beginning of singles. It was a chance to show what it's like when you have a city that you love and a group of friends who have become your family. There's a sense of family that disparate single people bring to each other, being in a city that they didn't want to leave. Plus, my idea at the time was to keep doing stories that aged as I aged up. Singles was stage two, whereas Fast Times was high school. Now it's going out in the world after you leave home. Yeah. And I think like, I think that I was like, right at the right age, you know, I was in high school, I was looking towards my future. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I did move to a cool city that I loved. And I had 
friends that were very much like family. And so in a way I had, you know, I did have some of those things and I did live in an apartment building where I was friends with my neighbors. So goals achieved (laughs) (laughs) at such a young age. Look at you. (laughs) Just all downhill from there. (laughs) Filming began on March 11th, 1991 and ended May 24th. I mean, two and a half months. Wow. That was fast. Yeah. Really, really fast. So the budget on this film was 9 million and the box office reached 18.5. Should we get into the plot? Yes. Let's do that. All right. So we open on like scenes of Seattle. Right. Seattle looks like a really cool town. I have to say I have never been there. It rains a lot. Don't really like rain. Okay. Do you want to know what's worse than you having never been there? Oh my God. You haven't been there. You've been everywhere. No. You live in the Pacific Northwest. I know. (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't know this about you. I No, I've never, I've never been to Seattle. I'll go with you. Yeah, come visit me and we'll go to Seattle. Okay, it's a date. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we see Linda. Linda in her perfect curls, played by Kira Sedgwick. Of course, her hair is the star of this film. Yeah, she's got good hair. Really good hair. So she's talking to the camera as she stands proudly in front of her duplex. And she's talking about how happy she is to be living alone for the first time. And she's also super, super stoked to have a garage with a clicker. So it's peak adult, Kate. Her own parking space, which let me tell you, there are a few things that are more valuable than your own parking space. Was there something, you know, when you were first starting out on your own that made you feel so oddly proud, peak adult, when you were a young person? Was there like a thing? Um, so I started to adult much sooner than most of my friends because mm-hmm. I moved out like within a month of turning 18. I don't think so because I think I felt very overwhelmed by adulting. Like I didn't, it's not like I moved out into a dorm. Like I moved out on my own. Right. I mean, in a weird way, I think like, <laughs> this is so dumb. <laughs> but like cleaning my house, like when I had like, you know, like I would come home and like clean my house like a grown up because like, I was just choosing to clean my house. No one was making me. Right. Or paying you an allowance to do it. Right. Like somehow that made me feel super mature. Like, mm-hmm. And then when I got to be the age that I could buy alcohol, I'm not sure what this says about our culture or society, but like the idea of just being able to like pour myself a glass of wine with the dinner mm. felt very sophisticated and adult, you know. Yeah. For me, I lived at home until I got married. Um, I got married at 22. And when I moved out, buying a refrigerator at Montgomery Ward felt peak adult. That was just like the highlight of my existence. Montgomery Ward. <laughs> okay. I have to share something with our listeners, though, because if you are not from California, you may not know this very particularly odd quirk of being a renter in California which is that you have to provide your own fridge. Oh, that's not like a thing everywhere? That's all no, I've only ever lived in no California. No other place I've ever lived, and I've lived a lot of places, do you have to bring your own appliance. Every other place, ha- like there, I have m- lived in some places where there were washer dryer hookups, but not a washer and dryer. Mm. 
but never other than California. And when I first moved away from California and I would go look at apartments and I'd be like, does the fridge come with it? And people would look at me like I was dumb. I see. Mm. Like, of course the fridge comes with it. What are you going to do? Move your fridge from apartment to apartment? And I was like, in California, well? yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, yes. So this is why buying a fridge was something that Lori did uh, when she was first an adult because you were not yet a homeowner. No, no. So that was very exciting for me. But Linda, you know, she's a professional. She works for the Seattle Environmental Council. And one day while she's out, you know, looking at little doggies in the window, she meets Louise, a handsome and charming international student from Spain. She is instantly smitten because, of course, and they begin dating. They have this like great little love affair. And he tells her that he has to go back to Spain before his visa expires. But he assures her that she is his reason to return. And he gives her a ring as a symbol of their future. And Linda is so like taken by this. She returns the favor by giving him her prized garage door opener. And she tells him that he is always welcome. Yep. She's in bed and he calls her and he's like, I'm at the airport. I'm about to get on the plane. I didn't want to wake you up. So she's excited about him, but he's obviously now on a plane back to Spain. I mean, he's, he's gone. He's gone. And she tells her friend and coworker, I love him so much. Like if I marry him, he can stay in this country and I'll always have someone to go out <laughs> right. with. If I marry him, I'll always have someone to go out with. <laughs> So funny. She's like, I'm tired of all the games. And I mean, she's all in, like she is taking this super seriously, but like, she's sad. He's gone. She misses him. And so that night she goes out to a club with her friend to like, you know, dance and have a good time. And she spots Louise at the bar. Talking a girl up. Yeah. Yes. He is canoodling Kate. Yep. And the look that he gives her that's the worst part of the whole thing is he, he sees her and he realizes like oh no like you know the jig is up right and then he gives her this look like well what like what do you want me to do like sorry i mean she is devastated she storms out her heart is broken and she freaking needs a new garage door opener right and God she damn. and now this man has access to her house right <laughs> But I have to say, she was a bit impulsive. Like, she was clearly, like, you know, I mean, she meets this random dude. And I'm not saying he didn't manipulate her, because wow, did he. But I'm just much more cautious. I would never jump into something. And I have jumped into things before, but not like that. Okay, but even at that age, like, how old do you think Linda is? 24? Twenty, Yeah, 24, 25, because Janet is 23. But so like at that age, I mean, I don't know. He gave her a ring. He was very convincing. They knew each other for like less than a week. Is that true? Did we ever get a timestamp on that? He says something like his visa expires in like a week or five days or something like that. So there's no possible way that they've spent very much time together. Um, And she's like ready to marry him, which, you know, I'm not saying that I haven't had fanciful thoughts about somebody that I just met, but like, right. I just would never get quite that emotionally invested <laughs> that early. It was quick. And I mean, this is when we get the title card, have fun, stay single. 
We're now outside of the apartment complex with a sign that reads singles, 18 units, no vacancy. We're taken inside the kitchen of one of these apartments where we meet Steve, played by Campbell Scott. He tells the audience a little about his like recent complicated breakup, and he reveals that he wishes love was as simple as this postcard someone once sent him. And it's a postcard of the kiss by Robert Dosnow. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I actually have this kissing postcard because I used to collect kissing postcards and I used to look at them a lot and just be like, ah, oh, romance. So I get it. I get it. He looks at this postcard and he's like, this is what I want. And he goes on to tell the story about how his dad left home when he was eight years old and told him before he left, have fun, stay single. Right. He's like, I was eight. I was eight. (laughs) So Things not to say to your eight-year-old child. He's like, yeah, you know what? Love is hard. I'm just going to concentrate on work instead. Yeah, work is the only thing I have complete control over. And I was like, I feel this deeply in my soul. <laughs> like, my career, great. My love life, horrible. <laughs> but like, my career, I can rely on my career. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something to be said for that. And he's some sort of like, I don't know, transportation engineer type person. He works in city planning. It's his dream to build like a hip super train to solve the city's gridlock problem. I don't know if you know this, but Johnny Depp turned down the role of Steve. He told Crow Hmm. that he just couldn't say I love you on screen, at least at that point in his career. What? Yeah. No. See, these weird actor quirks as someone who is an actor, annoys me. Like, what do you mean you're an actor? Like, you're not saying I love you to a real person. I mean, it's a character thing, but like, I feel like Johnny Depp is just way too, not that I don't find Campbell Scott super attractive because I do. He does it for me in all sorts of ways, but Johnny Depp is too pretty or something for that role. Well, And also a little bit too cool, right? Yes, like you need someone with a little bit of a nerdy edge. Yeah, yeah. That character's not supposed to be like super cool. And like I could see him playing Cliff before I could see him playing Steve. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that's the joy of like the Cameron Crowe movie is that the lead guy is always the underdog, a little nerdy, a little, you know, but like so endearing and lovely. And I just, Johnny Depp. While he embodies many things, does not embody that. No, it's that Lloyd Dobler quality that we love so much. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, there is part of me that feels like he's very clean cut for that time in Seattle, but he also works for the city. So, you know. I read something about how they were all very, very concerned because Campbell Scott was coming off of dying young. He was dying of cancer going through chemo in that film. And his hair was very, very, very short. Um, And they were really concerned. Like his hair is way too short for this movie. It's interesting that you say that because they wanted him to have like a lot more hair than he had. Yeah. 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 I mean, which is sort of weird because also it's Hollywood. Throw a wig on him. (laughs) You have a whole hair and makeup department. (laughs) Although they did only have a $9 million budget, so 
I'll, I'll give them that. Yeah. So in the next scene, we meet the adorable Janet with her adorable bob haircut and signature yes. flannel. Janet is played by Bridget Fonda. She is a 23-year-old waitress working out the Java shop. Java stop, not Java shop. Java stop. Java stop, which is a coffee shop. Uh, right. Java <laughs> stop, the coffee shop. And Java stop was actually a coffee shop in the OK Hotel that hosted Nirvana's first live performance of Smells Like Teen Spirit on April 17th, 1991. I will have you know. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So in terms of casting, Crow said that Bridget Fonda was the only cast member he had in mind while writing the script. Interesting. But back to Janet. Janet is afraid time is running out to do something bizarre. I love that. I love that line. I know. It's so great that like around the age of 25, bizarre becomes, what does she say? I didn't write it down. Yeah. Like, but like, it's true. Like people cut you some slack when you're uh, in your early 20s. Yeah. And she gets her inspiration from her grungy musician boyfriend, Cliff, played by Matt Dillon. This is fascinating in terms of casting for the role of Cliff. Crow really wanted Chris Cornell for that role. And they worked with him for a time, like to try to make it happen. But it was super complicated because, of course, Chris Cornell was the lead singer of Soundgarden, which was a very well-known Seattle band. And so with Soundgarden's schedule and him already being a bona fide, beloved Seattle musician, Crow was like thinking like, this is kind of delicate because we don't want the character of Cliff to kind of tarnish Cornell's reputation as like a real serious artist, right? Right, right. It was kind of tricky. And so in the end, they cast Matt Dillon, who was great. He is great. And like, because... That character is, like, such an airhead, like, kind of a heart of gold, sort of, uh, but, like, also not a good musician. <laughs> right. And in a way, like, a little bit caricature-ish, we all know people like that. I mean, my husband was in a band for a long time, and we know people who right. <laughs> we knew and we still know. People who kind of embody that Cliff persona. Right. We're huge in Belgium. Like it's that. Right. right? We are loved in Belgium. (laughs) But I I was still happy that Chris Cornell made an appearance on screen and performed on stage, you know, in the club. So that was really exciting. But right. Cliff's band, they are called Citizen Dick and they are made up of three fifths of Pearl Jam. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just so great. Um, Janet is like, my boyfriend's band is really good and I'm super stoked. He like moved into my apartment complex. So I get to see him all the time. Is he really her boyfriend or does she just think he's her boyfriend? Oh, that is a most excellent question because I think it's exactly what you're saying. She is all in, like she's inspired by him. She just thinks he's so dreamy and talented. She's in love with him. She's in love with him. And like, we see him and he's living his pseudo rock star life and he is not at all attentive to her. He tells her, Janet, you know, I see other people, right? You do know that. And this is the best. 
You know, God bless Cameron Crowe and his gift of dialogue. He is brilliant. So this is Janet's line in response to, you know, I see other people, right? She's like, you don't fool me. We made the connection. And when you make the connection, it's like, it's like chemistry takes care of itself. It makes its own decisions, you know? So you just got to sit back and enjoy it because, you know, when it's real and this is real and we just like, don't even have to discuss it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What? And he's just like, okay. Okay. What do you say to that? But like, also, have you ever been on the Janet side of this where you're like, this is real. And when it's real, like we don't even have to talk about it. So there was a little bit of painful self-reflection in watching (laughs) that scene. (laughs) To be fair, I did get more from my quiff than she's getting from this person. But I was a little bit insistent about the correctness of the connection. It's real. Chemistry takes care of itself, Kate. It's a tough one because I still think about that. And I'm like, there's a very intense connection there. But it meant different things to each of us. So, yeah, I don't know. But I was watching that and I was like, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable. (laughs) Make it stop. (laughs) I I don't remember this part from when I was 16. (laughs) Because you hadn't experienced that yet in your life. 30 years later, I'm like, hmm. Mm. Note to self. (laughs) It's different. It's different. We cut to Steve on his way to a club. He asks the talking mime for directions. Do you know who the mime is? No. Eric Stoltz. What? Yes. I love me some Eric Stoltz. I know you do. Oh, yeah. Okay. I can see this now. Because like he... Wait, what movie am I thinking of that he was in? Say Anything. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so another another crow classic. Cuz I'm thinking Eric Stoltz from like some kind of wonderful. Mm. Wh- but no, but like the guy, the key guy, the guy with the house and the party. Mm-hmm. The key master. Is, that's like that the Eric Stoltz that I'm thinking of. Okay, yeah, yeah. Speaking of some kind of wonderful, we do have plans, fingers crossed, schedules permitting to cover it this season, just FYI you guys. It's like Kate's favorite movie. I love that movie so much. I know you do. I know you do. So So, okay, we're at the club. We're finally there. There's a live band. Hello, Alice in Chains. Across the crowded club, Steve clocks Linda. They make eye contact across crowded room. And he approaches her and she's like, Yeah, thanks. No thanks. Like she's not into it. Her heart is broken. Like she is not open. Right. Well, and to be fair, he approaches her with like his anti-line line. I bought it. Oh, no. I love her response because he's like, me and my friend are having this argument that like you have to like have an act. And like, I think that's ridiculous. And I'm just I thought to myself, A, I could have an act. B, I could be myself. Wait, what does he say? I can't remember. C, I could like do whatever. He's like, so I decided to do C. And she's like, A, you have an act. And B, not having an act is your act. Not <laughs> like, having an act is your act. Which is so great because it's it's so true. It's so I true. I still bought it. I find him charming and delightful with that little bit of that nerdiness that I like so much. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't blame her for being, I mean, but she also liked him. But it was like, yeah, no, you're going to have to try harder than that. So we cut to Cliff being interviewed by a reporter. (laughs) 
Um, he said their band is bigger than, than the Seattle sound Kate. And of course they're huge in Europe and, and Belgium right. loves them. And he can't explain what his song touch, touch me. me I'm, I'm dick, dick is about. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, I mean, it means like, you know, but then I think a lot of people mean, think it means like, my name is Dick and I want you to touch me, but you know, it could mean both things. <laughs> it's deep. So many <laughs> levels, so many levels. Such a, such a philosopher. Right. Yes. <laughs> at the end of the night, Steve bumps into Linda again at a magazine rack. Oh, magazines. Remember? And maybe these two kids have a shot. I mean, they start talking. It looks like something could happen. Right. We then meet Debbie, a resident of the complex. She's my least favorite, by the way. Um, yeah. She's talking about using a video dating service to find love. Now, Kate, do you remember my mom and stepdad met through I video dating? I always think of your mom <laughs> when this part comes on. My mom and stepdad have been married 18,000 years, um, still married. They met through video dating after my mom and dad yeah. got divorced and like- People found love. I'll, I'll raise you one. My grandma met oh. her husband through video dating. Wow. Because, yeah, that was the precursor to online dating. Online dating, which I was thinking about it though. And I was thinking, at least with video dating, you got to see the people talking. And I feel oh. like they need to bring that shit back. Oh, am I allowed to say shit? Of course. Uh, <laughs> this is rated explicit Kate Marco okay. Polo for dating. How is video not integrated into dating apps at this point? You can on some of them, on some okay. of them, not on all of them, but on okay. some of them, you can make like a like a video greeting or something like that. But like, I mean, not that I'm excited about the idea of it, but at the same time, you learn so much more from somebody with live action versus just a picture because mm. you can pick up on the weird, quirky things. Kind of like people do with us on this podcast. I mean, they can't see us, but like they can hear us and all of our weird, our weird, quirky verbal things, things, whatever. We don't want to date you anyway. It's fine. It's fine. I like myself. <laughs> I like myself enough. Yeah. So like, it's a thing like people, I think, look at that and they're like, oh yeah. Oh, how quirky. I guess that was a thing for a second. That was a thing for more than a second. And a lot of people got married. Two people in my family got married from video dating. Right. Yeah. But like Debbie is an odd character. She's like the remnant of the eighties that like carried forward. into. <laughs> so true. Like I know this is 92, but like she's straight out of 1984. Right. It's she's she's such an odd character. I don't really know what to do with her. And I, I also feel like you could have cut her character out completely and like nothing would have been missing from the movie. Thank you for that. I was sort of like, why are we spending time with Debbie? I don't like Debbie. She's no value added oh, to me. She's no. an NPC, as my kids call it, a non what is it? Non-player character. So I don't know why she was in this. She just took up time that I'll never get back. Yeah, and maybe it was just to highlight the video dating. They could have had Janet, like, make a foray into video dating. That would have been one way to do it. Yeah, but whatever. It's fine. 
Moving on. Yes. Steve musters up the courage to call Linda approximately 61 hours after they met for a date. She's like really hesitant. She doesn't really want to meet up with him. And she's like, okay, okay. I'm, I'm having lunch at this place with someone like you can show up if you want to, whatever. So he arrives. Of course, there's no one else there. And they awkwardly tried to have a conversation slash lunch date while Paul Giamatti in his feature film debut (laughs) is disgustingly making out with a woman in the next booth. My favorite line. There's just no privacy anymore. Right. So I don't like PDA. I mean, I'm okay with like holding hands or like a quick little like kiss or whatever, but like, I don't... Uh, You have real feelings about it. I do. I have for sure dodged a few like first kisses because I'm like, and I'll like hug them and whisper in their ear like, it's not you and it's not that I don't want to kiss you. I just, I don't like doing it in public. (laughs) 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 I totally think it's an excuse, but. I mean, I don't really like PDA either, but I especially like everyone else don't like gross PDA. Right, like all over each other, like, like get a room PDA. Yeah. PDA, like yeah. don't have access to a room PDA. Right. I think my very strong feelings about PDA come from waiting in many an amusement park lines. Oh, yeah. It's the worst there. What is it about standing in a line that makes you just want to like... It's amusement parks and malls. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like it. They're yeah. just so romantic. Let me tell you what. Right. And it's, yeah. Well, anyway. It's gross. Okay. I clearly have strong feelings about this. And what's really funny is that, like, I am the least prudish person I know, but for some reason. True. Like, that just, I'm not a fan. So Steve offers Linda a ride back to work. And when she unlocks his door, he thinks it's an unmistakable sign. Like, there's something here. Things that would never happen nowadays. (laughs) Unlocking the door. Unlocking the door is a big sort of unmistakable sign in A Bronx Tale, another one of my favorite films. Okay. on This is random, but I rented a U-Haul truck the other day because I had to bring some stuff for my big backyard project. And uh, I had to roll down the window with the crank. Oh, like manually? You're like, what? Am I a Flintstone? What is happening? (laughs) Not only manually, but it was, I was like, you know what? It was so hard to turn. It was like stuck. It needed oil. But I thought, I wonder how many generations younger than me rent this truck and are like, man, our parents had to crank windows like this. This is so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Gen X understands me. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. We then see Steve and Linda talking outside in the courtyard of his apartment complex. Can you answer me a really important question here? Yes. I wonder if you're going to ask the same question I'm about to ask. Do you feel like a scene got cut out? 100%. Okay. We'll touch on that in a second. I never noticed this before. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Okay. So they're outside in the courtyard of his apartment complex talking and you're like, wait, are they on a date? Are they about to go on a date? Did they come back from a date? What is happening? And this is when he like kind of points to all the neighbors and tells her, you know, all the people who live in his complex. And he invites her inside his apartment. She sees the kissing postcard. She's like, oh, I have that postcard. And I was like, yeah, I do too. So they listen to records. They talk. Linda reveals her dating history. They have what friends call the night, right? Where you just spend like the whole night talking and you make your deep connection. So just when they're about to kiss, she's like, 
my laundry. Okay, what fucking laundry? She races off to get her laundry. That's what I thought got cut. Also, what did I miss something? What's up? Even before that, when they're sitting in the fountain. Yes. Which, by the way, fun fact, made of styrofoam. <laughs> that is okay, funny. Go ahead. He says something like about her clothes, about her laundry, like that it's dry or to put it in the dryer or something like that. I missed that. And they that. visited again. But also, but why? Like, what, what is the explanation for why she's doing laundry at his house? Like, did she spill something on herself? I mean, she has a garage. One would imagine she probably has a washer and a dryer. Something happened where yeah. she needed laundry services and he could oblige. And I don't right. understand. And they never explain it. No. And I was just like, how did I miss this before? This is so weird. And I'm like, if you needed to cut some scenes from singles for time to explain this laundry through hole, which I think we deserve to know. Right. Cut out stupid Debbie. We hate her. Yeah, it's, I don't understand what happened, but. It was enough of an excuse for her to dodge the kiss, which was a really important point, right? Right. Because it's the lead up to everything that happens after. So at the end of the night, you know, he takes that cue. He shakes her hand goodbye. They make loose plans to see each other again. Right. Although she says, I'll call you. And he goes, don't forget, all right? (laughs) 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 Aww. So like, I really do feel like there was more backstory in here. Like something happened and yeah, and they just cut it out. But it, yeah, I don't know. Okay. So this is the moment he tries to give her the remote to his garage parking space and she freaks out and bolts because obviously it's triggering for her. Right. Right. Okay. She goes home. Only to have Steve show up at her door. Which also another plot hole. How does he know where she lives? Yeah, that's a really good question. Her address. Like, they literally, like, had a beverage together. You're right. I don't know. We get another great crow line, right? We get another great line. I was just nowhere near your neighborhood. Right. Yeah. It's great. She kisses him and invites him in. Kate, let's talk about the show up. It's a move. I found that so romantic. I was just nowhere near your neighborhood. Oh my God. Yes. I think I've said this before on the podcast. The same action by a person you're very into reads one way, then that same action by a person you're really not into. Okay. You said this also in The Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) Hence the Seattle connection. (laughs) These things only happen in Seattle. (laughs) I was just nowhere near your neighborhood from someone you're not into. Okay, call the cops. I'm officially scared. So far as everyone knows, you never gave your address to. (laughs) Oh my God, so scary, right? Right. But somebody you're into, you're like, okay. Right. I mean, she she was into it. She kisses him. She invites him in. If you're going to do something like that, you better know which person you are before you do it. Key takeaway. Yes. (laughs) It's bold. Or it's creepy. You only want to do it when it's bold. (laughs) Absolutely. So they do it. They do it in ambered filtered light. And she gets a call that goes to her answering machine. Hello. It's Andy, Mr. Sensitive Ponytail Man. Which now would be Mr. Sensitive Man Bun Man. (laughs) So they talk about Andy. 
while she's waiting on her laundry that we didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, what I think is funny about it is that they they show a flashback to when she meets him because she meets him in college. Dress is your favorite contraception. (laughs) Right. Dress is your favorite. And like there's somebody there as like foam, like contraceptive foam. And a diaphragm. Mm-hmm, it's very mm-hmm. of the era. But they show Andy, and he is. He's like Mr. Sensitive Ponytail Man. Mm-hmm. I just have to say, like, online dating is full of this this dude. Like, they don't always have the ponytail, but they have this, like, condescending, I'm so much more intellectual than all of these, like, simpletons around me. Mm. And he's like... It's okay to hate these people. And then he says something about like emotional larceny. Yeah. And I'm just like, ooh, I've interacted with these people on dating sites and it's so painful. Which also doesn't emotional larceny sound like a song that Cliff would write? No, because those words are too big for Cliff. Cliff wrote, Touch Me, I'm Dick. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> So Mr. Sensitive Ponytail Man leaves a long ass message about how she should trust this guy, even though he is putting on the moves, like passive aggressively speaking. Right. And he just keeps talking and talking and talking. Um, We're having sex right now. (laughs) Yeah. So she she turns up the TV. It's Nick at night. Okay. Title card. The Hourglass Syndrome. This is the scene where Janet makes a super gross salad for herself with old lettuce. It makes me want to throw up. I know. Also, did you catch the pantyhose egg in the fridge? Oh, I didn't. That's not a thing anymore, right? Do they still? I mean, I know that people don't really wear pantyhose anymore. You can buy them. Do they still come in eggs? I don't think they come in eggs anymore. Legs pantyhose came in eggs. It literally just clicked in my head that like... It was an L and then an apostrophe, eggs. I literally never put together that, like... <laughs> Le- eggs. Legs. I completely missed that marketing. <laughs> it's not very good. Yeah, like, what does an egg have to do with pantyhose? An apostrophe makes it classy, Kate. Now it's right. legs. It makes it French-seeming. <laughs> very Parisian. And was it just, like, novel packaging? Yes. Like, did it provide a benefit over the kind that came? No, I'm rewatching Mad Men right now. No, it, it did marketing. not. It was okay. marketing. Yes. I am now a marketing professional. Yes. So Janet has a voiceover that's like working through her feelings about Cliff, right? Like, right. I'm not going to call him. Okay, wait, I'll call him in 10 minutes. Wait, if I make this basket, then I'll call him. Oh, wait. I That's two out of three. Wait. Did making the basket mean I call him or I don't call him? <laughs> Little fate, like universe games that we right. play with ourselves. Yes. And so we find out later that Janet and Steve used to date, but now they're just great friends. At Cliff's bachelor pad, we see his walls plastered with pictures of big booby mamas everywhere. Big yes. breasted women. And Janet's looking around and she's like, oh, I've, I've got small, modest breasts. And like, am I enough woman for Cliff, my big rock star boyfriend? And she asks him, are my breasts too small for you? This, by the way, is like a huge trick question, right? Like, let's just call it what it is. Like, there's (laughs) no way. I feel sorry 
for men who get questions like this, because we have all asked these questions as women and we act like we're cool, no matter what the answer is, but the reality but I just of it know. is I just like, know. I don't but care. Like- it's fine. Just, you could be honest. It's cool. There's no winning. <laughs> well, and she tells them and don't lie because your eye twitches when you lie. And I can true. tell. True. True. So like either you have to lie really believably. Mm-hmm. It has to be your truth. If, if it's not your truth and you're going to be honest, ooh, that's not going to land well. It's a lose-lose. I think we can right. all agree. And um, right. he answers her, like, sometimes. Which... Right. He, he, it, like, pains him for a while. Like, I don't know what to say. And then he says, sometimes. I know, especially in my younger years, I have asked questions like this to which there is no real good answer. Um, I think I want a lie. I think I want a very convincing lie. Right Now I'm smart enough and I've been married long enough to know I'm not going to ask a question I don't want the answer to because my husband is always honest and sometimes I love it and sometimes I don't love it, but I know I'm always going to get honesty. So if I don't want the answer, I'm not asking it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, why would you ask? that I just I don't know I don't know because you're young and when you're young it, like you do yeah. that like I, I think that's, that's a right I forgot about the thing. youth part right because now I'm like what like if somebody doesn't like your boobs don't be in a relationship with them but like I probably wouldn't have had that perspective when I was 23 right right on the flip side I'm not trying to be like super gendered in this but I guess I I am I don't know that men go around asking these kinds of questions to women because I don't know that they would want the answer. Right. I think that I have never had a man ask me. Like, how's my size? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Janet decides to make an appointment with a plastic surgeon, a plastic surgeon played by Bill Pullman. Yes. To talk about breast augmentation and the two of them go back and forth and have really big differences of opinion as to what size would fit her frame best. And she wants to go super, super crazy anime big. And um, he wants to take it way down. And she's like, look, if you're going to have the operation, have Have the the operation." operation, which in the nineties, it seemed like the trend very much with breast implants were the bigger, uh, the better. Right. There were women with breasts that just like, just would not occur on that frame of a body. I mean, in a million years, but like, it seemed to be a very nineties aesthetic. Do you agree? Oh yeah. To have like a really large bust and like a tiny Mm -hmm. waist. Yeah. Like, uh, like Jessica rabbit kind of like Mm -hmm. Pamela Anderson build. Right. Right. I mean, there's still a lot of unrealistic beauty standards, but there's so much more body diversity now that you see in media compared to that time. Like you always saw, like, and she says, like, I look around, I look at the magazines and the posters and, and the billboards. And yeah. Yep. So, okay. We're at a new chapter blues for a t shirt. <laughs> okay. Steve tells his friends that he is all in with Linda. Linda tells her friend that she wants to trust this guy. And we find out Steve left his blue t-shirt at her place in a classic, like leave something behind move, right? Accidentally on purpose. Um, His friends tell him, do not call her. 
play it cool. <laughs> you are way too into this girl. Right. But like the people who are telling him that are like Debbie and right. Bailey who are like notoriously single, right? And like don't maybe don't take dating advice from your like right. habitually single friends. <laughs> um just saying. So when Steve finally decides to call Linda at work, she won't take his call. She went out for groceries because he's waited four days to call. She's like not cool with the games. And this is when he shows up at her work again. Be sure you know which kind of guy you are, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) He shows up at her work. She plays things off like, I'm not mad. I'm just busy. Super passive aggressive move. We've all been there. But the best part is she goes, I just, you know, I just don't have time for these games. And he goes, I'm not playing games. If I was playing games, I would have waited seven days to call. (laughs) He's like, I just admitted I was playing a game. (laughs) She's not amused. Linda gets hers because in the next scene, we see her cleaning her toilet with his blue t-shirt. I have thought of that scene many times when men have pissed me off. But the thing that struck me this time is that she's cleaning the toilet with the t-shirt with her bare hands. And I was like, ooh. I can't get past that right now. And it's not like she was just like cleaning the lid. Like she was in there. She was like yeah. cleaning the gross parts of the toilet with no gloves on. It's pretty gross, Linda. Pretty gross. I mean, her voiceover reveals that she's pissed off at herself for like being vulnerable with him. Right. And she says it's better to be the dumper than the dumpy. Right. So Debbie has her expect the best dating video made. Note the cameo of Tim Burton as the director. Oh, he's the next Martin Scorsese. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and her ridiculous dating video is like Psycho meets Wonder Woman meets Dominatrix. And it totally contradicts what she says in the video. She is craving responsibility, respectability, and love. <laughs> right. Come where the flavor is. <laughs> Come to Debbie country, which is a play on like a Marlboro commercial, maybe. Maybe. Sure. Yes. Here's a fun fact. Paula Abdul was like this, 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 this close to nabbing that role. Actually, I think I would have preferred Paula Abdul in that role. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it was played by Sheila Kelly. I didn't like that character. So yeah, let's move on. No, this is when we get to hear the very beginnings, the demo of Spoon Man in the background as Citizen Dick, Stone Gossard, Eddie Vedder, Jeff Amett gather with Cliff to read harsh reviews of their live performance. And Cliff is like, this negative energy makes me stronger. They start to read it and he's like, wait, wait, wait. I don't want to hear anything negative. Only read the positive <laughs> parts. And they're like, okay. And they're like scanning it, scan. They like flip to the next page, scanning it, scanning it. And they're like, oh, but other than that, he was like successfully backed. <laughs> oh, so, man. oh, like Eddie Vedder in that scene, I'm just like, <sighs> he has just been a very attractive man, like his whole life. Like he's well, yeah. still exceptionally attractive. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Yeah, so it's clear that Cliff is the weak link in Citizen Dick. Right, right, because right. essentially the rest of the band is Pearl Jam. <laughs> Three-fifths of Pearl Jam. I mean, you can't really go wrong. So, yeah. Oh, poor Cliff. 
And the next scene, Steve takes Janet to her plastic surgery appointment for the big procedure. And he asks her, like, what are women really looking for in a man? And she's like, well, I don't know. For me, it's someone who has their own place, a steady job, is responsible, appreciates me, and will say, bless you when I sneeze. She says when she first moved there, that's how she felt. Now she'd settle for somebody who says kazoon tight when she sneezes, but she prefers bless you. Bless you, yes. <laughs> so, okay, the doctor calls her back for surgery, which was weird that the doctor called her back for surgery. Right. Weird. But anyway, <laughs> he gets her in the room and he tells her, like, I think you're perfect and I don't think you need the surgery. And he tells her how much he likes her. And she is so sweet and she kindly turns him down. But I'm like, why would you turn him down? He's super cute. Right, Because she's in love with her boyfriend. Yeah. So she decides then, I want Cliff to like me the way I am. And she decides not to go through with the surgery, which good call. In the next scene, we see Janet put Cliff to the test. She fakes sneezes in the hopes of getting a bless you. Only to have him tell her, babe, don't get me sick before my next gig. Mm. And then that that's like what flips the switch. Like, right. Deal breaker. Like, oh, I don't have to be here. <laughs> I mean, and it's crazy because up until now, like she has been all about him, even right. though he's dismissed her. You know, I will say like we could bag on Cliff all day, but he has been honest with her. It's not like he was treating her like Louise treated Linda. Right. Like he wasn't trying to... to be right. No, no, he was always sort of indifferent to all of that. You know, I see other people, right? He was always distracted. He never gave her much attention. He was always who he was. He didn't pretend to be other in that relationship. Right. She just kind of created a lot of it. And again, so we see her now enjoying life as a single gal. And this is with her famous line, being alone. There's a certain dignity to it. Right. Which, you know, I have to agree. Yeah. I mean, it is certainly better to be alone than to be with someone who you're fully invested in, who doesn't feel the same way about you. Right. In fact, I have stopped dating men because they were so invested in me and I was not invested mm. in and that just made me uncomfortable like I was like no I'm sorry sure. Linda and Steve reconnect and things are going well they're falling in right. love soon enough her period is late and so Steve goes to the store and buys like a hundred home pregnancy tests only to be to be checked out by a former classmate Played by Jeremy Piven. This is a really funny scene. I read some stuff about how Jeremy Piven just like went off the rails. He was like ad-libbing a lot of stuff. It was like (laughs) almost to the point where it was a little bit problematic. But in the end, I mean, I love this scene. So it's just so funny because he's like, yeah, we're having a party. Like, and then he's like, yeah, yeah. Like you have to come. You've got to be there. And he looks at the pregnancy test and says, or you may be busy. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. And it's like shut down. It awesome. It was so awesome. It is funny if you've ever bought a pregnancy test at the store. And like, there's a moment where like the cashier like kind of acknowledges like, oh. 
they look at you like, is this a hopeful? Is this not? Like, <laughs> like where, where are this, we with this? What is the situation? <laughs> right. We see Steve and Linda get together to perform this chemistry experiment. Did you see all the contraptions for this pregnancy test? Like, were they I really know. like that in 1992? There was a time at one of my jobs where we had to do a low sensitivity pregnancy test sometimes because most pregnancy tests are high sensitivity. And it was like that. You had to like mix like a chemistry experiment and you had to wait like 10 minutes or something to get the results. So I can only imagine that back in the day, they probably were like that, or at least some of them were. And then it was like, you could buy the really expensive newfangled EPT one, the EP on a stick. It was a full chemistry set. Probably a lot more of them were like that in the olden days. Interesting. (laughs) So, okay, it turns out Linda is indeed pregnant and they don't quite know what to do next. And so they both are like, oh, I got to go. Okay. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Okay. Busy day. See you. So now we get the title card of expect the best. And this is when Debbie shows the gang several videos of potential dates from the dating service. So funny. So they range from like sporty to artsy, which that artsy guy was Bruce Pavitt, founder of Sub Pop Records, like shout out to him. There's like a meathead guy. And then Uh there's that like very scary serial killer guy. Like I am very, very, very lonely. (laughs) So literally I'm watching this. I'm like, this is like actual footage of what it's like to date. I'm not kidding. First of all, so many guys have pictures where I'm like, this picture is terrifying. You look very scary. And then there literally are people who will be like, I'm just so lonely. Like, I'm so tired of like nobody wanting me. I'm like, why would you put that in your dating profile? You're like, you are, I am so attracted to you right now. I want to be the woman that makes you less lonely. And do you want to be with the woman who sees that and is like, that's the man for me? (laughs) I don't know. I guess maybe they're like, I'm just going to be honest. Like... No. All of our friends agree. Like, date the bicycle guy, the sporty spice guy, played by Peter Horton. 30-something. All I see when I see him is 30-something. Yes, and he was uh, once married to Michelle Pfeiffer, IRL. Oh. Why was I watching a show called 30-something as a young person? (laughs) I don't know, especially because when I was 30-something, I decided I was going to binge 30-something. And let me tell you... I did not enjoy it. Yeah. I'm someone who watches when I commit to something, like I will see it through. Even if I'm unhappy, I don't know why I do this to myself. I'm like, I started it. I must finish it. This was one of the very rare occasions that I actually stopped watching. I didn't like it. Yeah. I've never tried to go back and watch it, but don't. I'm good with that. Okay. I'm going to make this whole thing with bicycle guy go by real quick. Her roommate ends up knowing bike guy. Those two hit it off. Debbie doesn't end up with him. Bummer for her. She does go on a trip to Cabo and meets the man of her dreams. In the end, she has a happy ending. So yay for her. We won't miss you. Um, See you never. So Steve asks Linda to marry him while she's eating a, quote, historic chili dog. Right. And after a little bit of like, I don't know, can we, should we, I don't know. She says yes. So now they're both like, 
we're going to give this thing a go. We're having a baby. They're in the car driving down the road, which is always a clue in a film. When they show people happy in a car, that something really bad is about to happen. It's like when somebody has a dog in a movie. Like I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, man, like every time you have a dog in a movie, like something horrible happens to the dog. Right. (laughs) Anytime people are happy or in love in the car, there's about to be a really bad car accident. Yeah, Yeah. it always happens. So it happens here. They get totally broadsided and it's bad. She ends up losing the baby. So obviously Linda is going through some real shit. That hospital scene was really sad. And Mm -hmm. um, she decides she needs some time alone. So this is a great opportunity to take that month-long research trip to Alaska for work. Before this, though, she has one of my favorite lines, which is, I have a new emotion like every five seconds. <laughs> there are times that I go through that and I was thinking of that line. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's very real. Cliff, you know, he's missing Janet. He's trying to win her back. He does this very sweet thing by installing a ridiculous stereo into her car. And the sound is great. It's so great. It shatters all the windows in her car. Best laid plans. Linda comes back from her trip. Steve picks her up off the boat. Things are kind of awkward. They acknowledge it. They're like, yeah, it's weird. Like, we don't have to try to be back to where we were. Like, let's really be friends. Let's, and they both genuinely want it. Like, you feel it, right? Right. In the next scene, we're in a club. Soundgarden is performing. Mm -hmm. And Steve is there alone and he's drunk and he calls Linda a drunk call. Right. He's like, you belong. With me. me. We belong together. <laughs> uh, but she never hears that. And she never hears them say, I love you. The answering machine has totally eaten the tape. So she never gets to hear this message. You know, it's just so awful to think about an answering machine where you say something on tape and everyone around everyone could hear, hear it. it. It's yeah. Is there no privacy anymore, Kate? Is there no privacy anymore? Right. It was weird times. Weird times. <laughs> we survived it. I remember when you and I were both living in apartments and <laughs> I know what you're gonna say. <laughs> does it have to do with fire safety? Yes, it does. So <laughs> so when you live in an apartment, Kate always said, and I have said this a million times since, you're only as safe. As your dumbest neighbor. As your stupidest neighbor. To be fair, I didn't make that up. Kevin and Bean made it up. Okay, Kevin and Bean of the world famous K-Rock. Okay. (laughs) So you're only as safe as your stupidest neighbor. So when you live in an apartment and you share walls and you share, you know, a building. like you have gas stoves. (laughs) Right. Like like there's a certain amount of danger. Like maybe I didn't unplug the curling iron or, you know, whatever. Maybe my house is burning down. Like right now, and I'm at work. So Kate and I have talked about this a million times, right? And I would tell her, you know what I do sometimes when I'm at work and like I'm worried about my house? I'll call home. And if the answering machine picks up, I'll know my house didn't burn down. Because it was a physical machine in your house. (laughs) Did you ever use that trick? Oh, all the time. (laughs) Especially if I was like, did I leave the coffee maker on? Did I do this? Did I leave my curling iron plugged in? Right. But to be fair, 
like now we just have things that will do that for us. Like I happen to have like a special camera that like if a smoke alarm goes off in my house, it will buzz my phone and let me know. Oh, nice. I don't think mine does that, but nice. Nice for you. Right. So anyway, she didn't get the message, guys. She didn't get the message. So we see Steve's super train idea get rejected by the mayor, Tom Skerritt, who actually I think lived in Seattle. He was like a Seattle resident, IRL. And Steve's like, okay, I'm going to quit my job now. And I'm going to go through some emotional turmoil and go on a downward spiral. So, yeah. So now we're at the title card. What took you so long? Linda is back with Ponytail Andy. You know, she had a lot of emotional upset with like losing the pregnancy and the relationship ending. And he's safe, right? He's like, there's a line where they say something like, it's better to be comfortable mm. than passionate or something like that. Okay. Okay. Which is not my motto, just for the record. So I think she's just like, this is comfortable. And then she realizes, like, this is terrible, right? Because right. she says, being with Andy is like being alone together. Hashtag goals. Steve is woefully depressed, right? He's living in absolute filth. Right. Janet pays him a visit to like check on him. She's like, I'm a little bit concerned about you. He insists he's fine. It's hang time. He is regrouping. I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't know why my voice is so high. I'm fine. (laughs) In the words of Ross Geller. Yes. Right. (laughs) So Janet tells him that she's going to go back to school. So Janet is onward and upward while Steve is on his way down. Yeah. Steve's not doing well. Cliff still trying to get Janet back. He admits that he didn't appreciate her. She tells him that she's totally over him and she finds him very dot, dot, dot entertaining. Cliff says, Janet, you rock my world. (laughs) We then see Steve. He's reached rock bottom. He's now on his way back. He's waiting by the fax, by the facsimile machine. Right. For some sort of reply to some job applications and stuff. And this is when Linda comes to his door. She says, I was nowhere near your neighborhood. He's so happy to see her. And she tells him, I want to know you again. And Steve says, what took you so long? And she says, I was stuck in traffic. And then they like really kiss. Cliff tells the audience that Steve is moving out with Linda. They're finding their own place. It's all happening. And, but, but as for Cliff, he's cool with being alone. But in the next scene, Cliff is in the elevator in the building and Janet comes in. Or is she the one that's already in there? It doesn't matter. They're in the elevator together. And she sneezes like for realsies this time. It was a real sneeze. And he turns to her and he says, bless you. And it's sincere. And they turn and look at each other and she kisses him. Right. It is a very cute moment because she's like, thank you. And then. And then she like does a double take like, oh, he just said, bless you. He just said the thing I've been waiting. But here's the thing, like he acknowledges that he didn't appreciate her. He's been making these motions to try and win her back. But fundamentally, he's still Cliff. Maybe he's come to appreciate her and he will be different this go round. I hope so. Critics pretty much like the film. 
Roger Ebert gave it three stars. He said Singles is not a great cutting edge movie and parts of it may be too whimsical and disorganized for audiences raised on cause and effect plots because it is kind of all over the place. He said, but I found myself smiling a lot during the movie, sometimes with amusement, sometimes with recognition. It's easy to like these characters and care about them. And I would agree. Except Debbie. (laughs) Except Debbie. Yeah. The soundtrack to this film was a huge success. It was actually released three months before the film was released. And it featured, of course, you know, a lot of the Seattle bands like Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden. But when the studio asked Crow what percentage he wanted of the soundtrack album sales, he told them none, give the money to the musicians. Because he really wanted this movie to be a love letter to Seattle. That was really what he wanted. But at the time that filming wrapped for this, like the Seattle sound movement hadn't even really happened yet. Right. So it was like Crow knew that he was on the precipice of something amazing, like a generational shift, like a cultural shift. And he told Rolling Stone that Warner Brothers didn't even want to put the movie out because they just didn't get it. He was begging them to release it. And they were just like holding off. And it wasn't until Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit exploded that they were like, oh. Oh, this is what you meant. Oh, okay. We can call the movie Come As You Are. And Crow was like, "Um, no, it's not called Come As You Are. And then they said, we tested that title and we really love One Hot Summer. Ew. And Crow's like, I said, no, it's not called One Hot Summer. It's called Singles. And then finally, I think their kids were telling them, you have Pearl Jam in a movie and you're not putting the movie out. Right. The only reason. From the mouths of babes. (laughs) Come on. That's so crazy, right? But that's like such an example. Like we were just talking about the documentary Woodstock 99. Yeah. And how like. The younger people involved, like the promoters are older, but the younger people involved are like, you can't have like Limp Biscuit Biscuit and like Cheryl Crow on the same. Like it's weird, right? Like it doesn't make sense. But no, they weren't listening to the younger voice because the younger voice was stupid. So all these big studio heads who obviously they're not the target demo, but they don't don't have their finger on the pulse of the youth. (laughs) They invested all this, even whatever it was, nine million, right, into this film, and then they're just gonna sit on it. It's like that, right? Time At the is time now. that like all of these musicians are like starting to peak. Like I said, I am a pop culture know nothing now, but like I would never be arrogant enough to be like, oh, I know, I know what the kids are into these days. Right. I, have, I have no idea. The timing of this was so serendipitous. Right. Crow did all of this with Seattle bands who were just like, just starting to, oh, right there, right at the right time. It just hit at the exact right time. Yeah. Cameron Crow said, I had a secret dream that in Seattle, people might one day put a little plaque up in one of the restaurants or clubs that said, here's where Singles was filmed. And that's the stage where Soundgarden played. But sure enough, over time, singles the Singles Apartment House became kind of its own little tour stop for anyone who remembered the movie. He said, like, 
Sleepless in Seattle has plaques all over Seattle of where it was filmed. And he really, really wanted that vibe for singles, but it kind of just never happened. Like the apartment complex is a thing, but. Yeah. I always really wanted to live in an apartment complex like that. Yes. I I mean, there are people who inhabit that apartment complex now. That's so cool. It's like, I live in the singles apartments. Right. And people can come by and take pictures. Yeah. Uh, I studied abroad in London and our apartment was right down the street from Abbey Road, the famous crosswalk. And people were so tolerant because, of course, everyone wanted the picture of like walking across the the crosswalk and cars would just wait. Like they would just wait for people to do it. I guess like if you're in a hurry, don't take Abbey Road. Our international listeners. Yes. Yeah. So, Okay. We did quote some Ross Geller here. We did have, we did. you know, a little bit of a friend's talk here, but Crow got a call from Warner Brothers. Okay. Warner Brothers was the studio behind this film. Okay. The television department called him and said, you know, we want to make a TV show out of singles. We really like this idea of young kids who live together and work in a coffee shop. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't want to make a TV show out of it. And they were like, well, we may do it anyway. And I was like, no, you can't do it anyway. He says, months and months go by. And this item comes out in The Hollywood Reporter that says singles is set to become a TV show from David Crane and Marta Kaufman, the people <laughs> who ended up doing Friends. I called my lawyer and I said, you have to stop this. They're doing a TV show of singles. And I said, no. So the plot of friends comes out and it's all these people around a courtyard with a fountain. Remember right. that fountain was styrofoam in the film <laughs> and they're working in a coffee shop. Apparently they changed the pilot so that it had fewer similarities. But to this day, my mom says you really screwed up on friends. All you had to do was say, yes, you would be living in a castle right now. <laughs> and I say, huh, I don't need to live in a castle. I'm happy with the choices that I made. But in my mind, at least, you can partially draw a line from the genesis of Friends to our little Seattle film. Oh, that's so interesting. Like, I wouldn't have made that connection. It is different But, like, enough. they lived in the same building. A coffee shop, the fountain. Yeah. yeah, definitely not, like, much more, like, kind of squeaky clean, right? Like, it was not, it didn't have the same grit. No, not grungy, had. not edgy. Right. Any final thoughts on the film? You know, I almost feel a little sad that, like, it's not as, like, cherished to me as it once was. But I think it's because I grew up, right? Like, I'm not, like, when I really loved it, I was on, like, one side of where they were. And now I'm, like, way on the other side of where they are. Um, That's interesting because same with Reality Bites, but yet upon the revisit, you loved it just as much. Yeah. Why is that? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe Reality Bites had a little bit more meat to it, you know? Like, there was a little bit more of a plot line through it. Could be Ethan Hawke. (laughs) I felt like there were too many sort of peripheral, I can't say that word, characters. Yeah. Didn't need Bailey. We didn't need Debbie. Like, And I didn't feel like we got enough time with the characters move really quickly i think that's what i noticed a lot where i was like like i would have liked to see a little more like story to plot development which presumably was there and got cut out 
And all that was left was the laundry. Because it does go really quickly. And it, it doesn't always make sense. Like, I had written in my notes, I think when he calls to ask her out, and she keeps having excuses, and he's like, water, do you want it? Can we go drink water? But I'm like, why did she turn him down? Like, she likes him. Why was she turning him down? Like, that didn't Because really... I think she had just been hurt, and she just didn't even want to deal. But... I felt like the only couple that we really spent significant time with were Steve and Linda, because even Cliff and Janet, they don't actually have that much screen time. They don't share that much screen time. And they're the ones on the cover of the box on the VHS. It's just, I don't know. And even like, if you look at the trajectory of like Steve and Linda's relationship, so they meet, she blows them off. They run into each other later that night. They talk. They like each other. But then, like, nah, nah, it doesn't quite work out. Then, like, they do like each other. She gets pregnant. They decide to get married. It goes at a really odd pace for me. So, yeah. yeah. And I felt like the chapterization of it, it, it made it feel disjointed to me. I understand, like, vignette-style type films with, you know, different characters right. and what... Okay, fine. I just don't know that this was done as artfully as I have seen it in the past. It lacked cohesiveness. Yeah, like something in the edits was not quite there. And I think there's a certain amount of like nostalgic charm to it. Oh, yeah. The music, the fashion, the backdrop, all of it. And of course, like the big highlight for me is always the dialogue when it comes to Cameron Crowe. Right. From this side of things. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel quite the same as it did when I was younger and, and was sort of aspiring to like Mm -hmm. that time in my life. And like, now I'm like, oh God, that time in my life. I'm so glad I'm past it. (laughs) I mean, I'm still single, but. (laughs) I mean, the movie had heart, but I don't feel like it had the level of heart that I'm used to seeing in Cameron Crowe films. Yeah, very true. It's not quite there, but I mean, it's fun and. Yeah, like, it's not like I was like, oh, I can't believe I have to keep watching this movie. Right, like (laughs) 30-something. Right. (laughs) Well, Kate, as always, it was such a pleasure to have you on the pod for our inaugural episode of season four. I'm very, very excited about it. Hopefully we can get some kind of wonderful recorded sometime soon. Yay. And as always, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you're loving the pod, I invite you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Untitled Gen X podcast. You can find us on the web and the socials. And as always, we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.